All right, so I want to start with calling. It's, a, it's kind of a nasty word for me because I think it gets used and abused in the Church of America. Um, but what is our calling? What's our calling? What do we do? And this will not be a monologue, so if you don't answer, we'll just sit. That's okay with me. You think about calling, what do people say? I'm called to... I love God. Love God. Tell me about Christ. One of my concerns, of course, is we say I'm called to be a pastor. And uh, at least at our church, we think everyone's called to be a pastor. And so I'm not trying to diminish the role of pastor. I'm just trying to help us understand God's call in our life. I think the most important call in our life is son and daughter of the king. That that's who we are. Every one of us. And so, of course, we have to kind of define, like, what is the kingdom within a king? And so, so let's just start with a little bit of language of the gospel. That's a, a word that we use, but if we don't have some common language, then it's going to be hard to have a conversation. So when you think of the gospel, what is the gospel? Good news. Good news? Galeon? Yeah, what else? How would you describe the gospel? Corinthians 15.3 Okay. Christ died for our sins, buried, third day rose, etc. Okay. So I like Jeff Vanderselt. He uses a lot of really good symbols. I'm an incredibly gifted artist, um, and so our church knows that and makes fun of me. But I, I like these symbols for the gospel. And so again, this goes to kind of where, where Paul's taking us. Right? Literally Paul Orlinghouse and Paul, right? Within the New Testament. But again, there was creation. Right? There was fall. So God designed us for a relationship with him. And so he came to us in the garden. He gave us the good life, fully joyful relationship with him. We have sin. And then we have the solution to our problem, which is the cross. So our work, God's work, and then the new creation that's coming. Some new symbols that I like to use is from this point on, we kind of use these little sideways Vs as this example of this is the gathering of people that are longing for an answer to sin. And then from here, we're united in the gospel, and now we're sent by the gospel. And so often when I think about the gospel, I like to draw pictures, but I'll use like a spiritual number. I don't know who to give credit to for this. But again, we were born in our sin. I talked to way too many people that are like, well, I was born a Christian. Actually, you were born in the image of God, but you were born in your sin. Dead in our sin is the way Paul describes it. Um, and yet there is a moment, we call this justification, again, where, where God redeems us, that we were dead, but now we're alive. In fact, that's what makes us happen. When we think about the gospel, I often will highlight this, this arrow here. Because as kingdom laborers, as sons and daughters of the king, what we're saying is we believe this work, the gospel is God's work, that he does the work, that that's what makes us dead and then alive again. And this is what we call at Vintage, our OST, our ongoing spiritual transformation, that healthy things grow. I don't think that in the church context that you can be justified without be being sanctified. And that's a big deal because I think sometimes we've created a church structure around, well, I'm justified. I got my get a jail free card, right? But we can't be justified without be being sanctified. And so we're on this journey now that we would call the gospel. Now, God gave us one calling within his good news. What's our calling? Son and daughter. But what's our job? What's our calling? What's the target? What are we after? To be his witness. To be his witness. Okay. Make disciples. So again, you got a book when you walked in. I want to invite you to turn to page one. Now, we won't walk through all of the book per se, because I do believe that you know how to read. Okay? And so I, I'm going to let you read it on your own. I have digital copies as well. You will get later. But before you go to page one, look at the cover. What was on the cover? The title is Disciples Made Here. 
So the church has a mission. The people of God have a mission, which is to make disciples. What do you see on the cover? Disciples made here. Baseball. What else? Coffee. Coffee. Legos. Stethoscope. And part of why we created this picture is, again, I grew up in a church culture and context where what we said is, and I'm a church planter at heart. I still am. In fact, we've said we don't ever want to be a normal church. What I mean by that is we always want to be a gathering of sent ones. And so if you think about the gospel, here is the gospel, that the Father sends the Son, that the Son sends the Spirit. And what does the Spirit do? He sends us. And so there's this theology of sentness that's all over the Word of God. And so as we've kind of created this church planting world, and I've been a part of it now, we're an eight-year-old church, but I've been a part of it for a while, my fear is this, that we have created a church planting kind of network of planting services. We're not actually planting churches. We're planting services. We're saying, come here. Come here and we'll make disciples. So even if we plant churches, what we've done is we've said this reality of, come here. We'll go to the coffee shop. We'll go to the baseball field. We'll go to our work. And what do we do? If we want to make disciples, what do we do? We say, come here. The problem is, how does that jive with the gospel where God was a sending God, where he sends the son to us? He didn't say, come to me. He sends the son. He sends the spirit. He seals us with the spirit at this point, And then he sends us on our way. And so part of what I've wrestled with for years now is how then do we kind of flip the script? I'm not anti-people coming to church. Please hear my heart. Um, But here's my belief after about 20 years of ministry now. My fear is this. We have one mission. On the inside cover, you see it. Matthew 28. What's the Great Commission? Go make disciples. And even the phrase there, go, we bolded it so you can't miss it, right? It's as you are going. As you are going, go make disciples. And here's my conviction. Please hear my heart here. I don't want to lose you before we start. But I think the greatest stumbling block in the Church of America to disciple-making, which is the mission of God, is senior pastors and Sunday morning gatherings. Now, that's a problem because I'm a senior pastor and I have a Sunday gathering. In fact, I think we joked about changing my title at church to be lead disciple-maker. That's actually what my role and my calling is. Son of God, love God. And then encourage other people to love God. And so, again, this arrow here is significant for me because what it says is that I'm following Jesus. It says that I believe that there's more joy in Jesus than anything or anyone else that this world has to offer. And so when we think about the spiritual number line, in in kind of an old paradigm of church, we would say this is called evangelism. And this is called what? Discipleship. I actually think it's all discipleship. It all is. And so, again, I want to be careful here as to what are we talking about. So I just want some shared language here. We're talking about a theology of sentness that comes from the Father sending the Son, the Son sending the Spirit, and now the Spirit sending us to go make disciples, to go share our joy in Jesus, not to come. But, again, the title of the book is Disciples Made Here. Now, again, this is just a – it's kind of a think tank. I don't want this to be a monologue. We're going to talk about what does this mean. But this is an actual study that we wrote and walked our people through. Um, And so this, again, we do discipleship series. The way that we teach, we pick a book of the Bible, we just preach verse by verse. We've done Philippians, Ephesians. We'll start Romans in the fall for three years. We're in Revelation right now. Um, Yes, I'm a glutton for punishment. Let's just see how divided we can make people and teach these books. Um, But at the beginning of this year, we launched this series called Disciples Made Here. 
And so the book that you have is something we walked through as a church. Now, our version was a 29-day challenge. We wrote sermons around it. We tried to recreate it because of the places and spaces God has put me where he's given me an opportunity to just share with people. My hope for you is that you could say about your church that our disciples are made here, not here at Soma, but through the body of Christ being released to live on mission. But that's what's happening in San Francisco. Again, I'm not against the Sunday gathering, but when we flip those arrows, I think what we see is called kingdom movement. Part of why we named our church Vintage is just to go back to Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, they had gatherings, but really what they had is a great scattering. We do four things every Sunday. We, we preach the gospel. We have sermons. We tell stories every Sunday. We sing songs every Sunday, and then we do ascending. For three years, I served in a Lutheran church. I wore the robe and everything in my sermons, and they, they nailed it. They got the benediction. They got the sending mentality of that I think we see in the gospel. We're sent to go make disciples. So again, I want to walk us through this book in a moment, um, but as we do, I want to focus on, so what is a disciple? So when you think about a disciple, what do you think about? Who are they? An example of Christ. An example of Christ. Who else are disciples? Student of Christ. Student? Yeah, literally Christian, little Christ, an example. Student's great. And this flies in the face of, I think we have a leadership culture in America, right? And we even talked about that as we started our session, like come to the conferences, write the books, who are you following on Twitter? The problem is the kingdom of God, does he call us to be leaders? What does he call us to be? Disciples, which by definition means what? Follower. Follower. That's what it means. And so this is what we're talking about, student. Student implies a teacher or a rabbi. Who are we following? What else? Well, you also want to be a teacher, too. Yeah. You want to share what you are. So a student following a rabbi, so I'm going to say follower, someone worth following. I like that. What else? Because here's the tension. If we have one mission, go therefore and make disciples. Let's have clarity as a team to say, well, what is a disciple? I think the Bible teaches that a disciple is made up of three key relationships. Relationship with God. Relationship with who? We'll call this R1. Love the Lord your God. What's the second great relationship? Other believers. So vintage, we describe a disciple as someone who has a deepening relationship with God, someone who has a life-changing relationship with other believers. And what's the third great relationship? We don't know Christ. And so for us, we have this definition of what is a disciple. A disciple is not someone who lives R1 or R2 or R3, but actually someone who lives r cute. And again, I come from a church context and culture where we can kind of focus on one or the other. Now, what are some of the good things about our relationship with God? I think that's one of the great lies of Satan, by the way, that you have a personal relationship with Jesus. Is that true? Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? Yes. But I, like Satan's like the master of half-truths. You also have a corporate relationship with God's people, right? And so again, I don't think it's just one or the other, but let, let's just focus on our one. What are some of the good parts about our one?
Yeah. yeah. So again, for me, there's this joy in relationship with Jesus. We use all sorts of language, you know. We were desperate, dependent. That's part of what I hear you saying. But God makes us alive in Christ. Like He woos us, He invites us. Our identity is in our one. What else is our one? Vertical relationship with God. Say it again. Hope. It's great. Really, what? Hope of not only here, but hope of a future or something beyond this. An inheritance. Living hope. Now again, our one's extremely important. It's our one for a reason, right? He's the one that did the work. He designed us. He came to us. He came down. What are some of the benefits of our two? We're made. We're made for our two. We're image bearers. So we need community. Autonomous islands. Yep. So we're made in his image, but we're made in his image where there's a perfect community. So we've got the Trinity played out. What else in R2? What do we get from R2 that on some level we can't get from R1 and R3? I mean, there's a sense of community. We're in this together. You're not alone in that. And we use the word communitas. And what I mean by communitas is a common mission and a common master. So community moves when you switch locations. Right? Because you're no longer with kids at the same school. You're no longer rooting for the same sports teams unless you're a diehard Niner fan like me and Paul. You stay faithful as you're an exile in SoCal, which I was for a long time. Right? But community rotates. And at least for us at Vintage, we're getting really good about sending people to Idaho and Tennessee. And I mean, everyone's leaving California. So communitas is different than community because we have a common master and a common mission. Paul talks about this, right? There's no Greek, nor slave, nor Scythian, no Jew. No Gentile, we're all one and one. So again, our one matters. It's actually first for a reason. This deepening dependence upon God, this identity, this joy, this forgiveness. But he puts us in community, communitas, to live out the gospel together. So we say this is a deepening relationship with God, right? I love A.W. Tozer. The more you know, the more you know you don't know. It's the most important thing about you that you can't anything about God. So we have our one. But again, we lean into our two and the fruit that comes. Accountability comes from our two. That's like a word that's a catch-22 for me because I grew up in a culture of like duty and obligation and not joy in Jesus. So accountability was always the like, don't, 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 instead of inviting me to yes, yes, yes. So again, I, I use accountability, I think, in a healthy way. It's a good thing. It's actually a good word. It's not a bad word. Um, but accountability is here. Anything else in R2 before we move on? Yeah, Peership. Say it again. Peership. Just of being equal with other people. Peer, I heard Peter. Oh, yeah, peership. Being with. Belonging. I mean, we do recognize, right, that like everyone's just looking for a place to belong. If the church is filled up of sinners saved by grace and saints who struggle with sin, anyone can belong here. Far from God, he comes near to us. He's coming to us, not the other. He's not, Jesus doesn't say, hey, I arrived, come here. He goes to them and he invites them in. What about R3? What are some of the attributes of R3? We call this living proof, a relationship with the yet to believe. We say yet to believe because we're eternal optimists. Um, we don't say things like, well, they're pagans. It's not very helpful. 
um, we say yet to believe. There's this hope that in time, when they hear the gospel, that the Spirit will do a work in their heart, bringing dead man walking. That's a him thing, not an us thing. But we say yet to believe. So what, what about, what's the benefit? So deepening with God, liking other believers, engaging with the yet to believe. What are some of those benefits? Deepens on some level, redefines, gives you concrete expression. Gives you the opportunity to share, to share Jesus. Now, why do we love the yet to believe? Because God does. Like one of my great fears in the Church of America right now is we keep fighting with the world instead of recognizing that we're supposed to be fighting for the world. Like it's a huge problem for me. Like we keep like engaging in this warfare that isn't about the kingdom. They're empire issues and they're not kingdom issues. And yet there's this forgetfulness of like I'm mad at the world. Like everyone in this room was R3 at some point. Every one of us was dead in our sin, but God made us alive. That's where our happiness and our joy comes from. And so there's this picture now of what is a disciple. Now, my fear, of course, I put some of these in green, and, and there's more here. There's a lot more here. You really kind of press into this. What is a disciple? Or one, or two, or three. But again, what is the fear if we're just, can you be a disciple and just have our one? If you have your Bible, someone turn with me and, and look up John 8, 31 through 32. Can you be a disciple and just have our one? Someone got that for me? Mike, you got it? This is not a sword drill. I promise I'm not testing you. You got it? I got it. John 8, 31, 32. 31, 32. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you're really my disciples. Then you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So again, there's this R1 component to this head reality of knowing the truth, the truth setting you free. It's this deepening relationship with God. But here's my fear. My buddy Larry Wachmeyer says it this way. In the Church of America, I'm afraid that we're over-teaching and under-reaching. Because what can happen if we're just our one people, I think we can become a scholar. A whole lot of head knowledge, little heart knowledge, very little hand knowledge. And we kind of pull this direction. What about R2? If we just focus on R2... If someone's still in John, go to John 13, 34 through 35. Someone got it? John 13, 34 through 35. Oh, oh. Okay. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You all sort of love one another. By this, all people will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So we should probably put love on R2. There's a benefit of R2, right? But what's my fear if we're just R2? I don't think you can be just an R2 Christian. What happens if we're just hanging out and loving each other? What do you start to be? And we're focused. I use the word socialite. Does that sound like some of our churches? Someone in the last session said country club. 
We can become a, a, a church of scholars, a, a church of a socialite that we're just over here. Who's got John 15, 8? When you produce much fruit, you are my true disciples. This brings great glory to my Father. So what are we looking for? From We're looking for fruit. There are people who were dead but are now alive in Christ. And my fear is, do you guys know any Christians that are they're just R3 focused? I, I don't need that. I, I don't need those Christians. I hear that a lot right now. I don't need those Christians in my life. I just got this. I think we've created a culture of potentially social justice warriors. They're, they're fighting for something. And honestly, i got a lot of buddies who are social justice warriors. They're doing great work. They might be doing more work than kingdom people. But it's empire work. Again, it's to try and attack the, the social issue instead of actually going to the heart issue of the gospel. What's happening here? And so again, this is part of my concern now, right? Is that we need to have some common language. And so something I feel like as a pastor is I'm constantly redefining what is a disciple. A disciple is not R1 or R2 or R3. A disciple is someone who lives what we call R cubed. And so I'm constantly trying to pull people towards this definition of what is a disciple. Because really, you can't even have two-thirds and have the whole thing. Like, what happens if you just have R1 and R2, but no R3? What happens if you just have these guys? You've got a deepening with God and a life to another believer, but ah, they're not with us. What happens? I call this a holy huddle. Based on your smiles, that you're like, I get that. You ever been a part of a holy huddle before? For me, it's been the church sometimes. Yeah. Them and us. Yeah. What about if you have R2 and R3 but no R1? You ever seen this happen? I cause this a, a cause coalition. And again, good work can happen here, but the problem is it's like doing work with no king. So it's not kingdom work, but you're doing this work, right, with people, making a difference in the empire, but there's no actual king. What about R1 and R3, but no R2? What does that turn out to be? I love God. I love people who don't love God. What happens there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I call these guys uh, religious Rambo's. Lone Rangers. I like the way you put that. I'm doing this thing. Uh, I, I come from SoCal for a, a large part of my life, and Staples Center is where the Lakers play. I'll never forget walking in that first time, and the guy's standing up on his little soapbox, literally a milk cart, and he's got this sign up, right, that says, you're all going to hell. Now, is that true apart from Jesus? Absolutely true. Again, we use a lot of acronyms at Vintage Grace. Theology must match your tone and your timing. We call that TQ. Theology must match your tone and your timing. I wish there was someone that went to that religious Rambo and said, hey, how successful, where's the fruit from that method? Right? Because the fruit comes, I think, most often from relation. Now, don't hear me say that we don't preach the gospel, always use words when necessary. That's what Francis C.C. said, right? 
Like it's got to be head, heart, and hands. It's got to be the whole package. And so again, as we look at what a disciple is, we're going to continually go back to this. Someone who's living our cube, deepening with God, life-changing other believers, and engaging with the yet to believe. And so again, I share this to obviously have some common language for us. I share this because I think it's kind of the, the fruit and the reality of, of where we are. But I share this because we got to hit the target. So how are we doing hitting the target in the Church of America? And I'm not trying to pick on the Church of America. Again, I am a senior pastor with a Sunday gathering. I'm just trying to say, how are we doing? How do you feel on a scale of 1 to 10? Are we crushing it? Why are you laughing, Mike? Well, because if you think about it, if you look at all those different circles, you see that joy, mm. and you see a lot of joy in the church today. It's mm. good. Mm. And so that's kind of the language we use a lot, right? We have joy all over our picture, right? We were dead, we were alive, now we're happy. This is joy, our language, in fact, we didn't call our church a church, we called it Vintage Grace, that was it. Um, and the reason being is we didn't want to get associated with church and religiosity and religious rambos and cause coalitions or holy huddles. We wanted to be a joy-filled community of faith. I'm not, I'm not saying that churches aren't, but that was our hope. Preferred future. Mm-hmm. And so I would just say, man, we're, we're kind of struggling here. We're not, we're not crushing it. I'm not mad at us. I don't want to be an, an angry disciple, but I do want to identify and be appropriate when I say, I think we could be doing better. I think we could start to have conversations. I think we start to say, what's the goal? What's the target? And so for us, we use this, this picture with our people a lot to say, here's the goal. Not our one, not our two, not our three, but living our key, living together. This is what we mean by a disciple that makes disciples. So our, our conversation today is more on, are we living this theology of setness? And what are we sent to do? We're sent to make disciples, and there's our target. Does that make sense? Any questions so far? Any heresy patrol? Because again, everything I'm saying, it's, it's not that unique. The word vintage for us is let's just go back to what God designed. Let's, again, I think in the church we're in, we've way complicated things. What is VX? I get the T cross V. Okay, so V. I mean, you, you said. I gotta be very careful not to use Sharpies on. Uh, okay, so this is God coming to us through creation. Oh, is it just the angle? Coming yep. down. Coming down. Oh, oh, oh. And so for me, I'm trying to help yeah. people, and this is not my language. I'll try to be very clear on when I steal something from someone else versus use ours, but this is Vanderstel. And so again, this is God coming to us in creation. In the beginning, we regularly use this stool as a metaphor for like the throne of our heart. And the throne of our heart has vacancy for one. In creation, God sat on the throne of our hearts and all was good. There was a joy-filled community of faith called Adam and Eve and Yahweh. They were in relationship. And then in the garden, of course, there's rejection of that relationship and sin. Everyone between Adam and Eve and you and me have the same issue. We've not got off the throne of our hearts. That's the core of sin. So what's that symbol? This? Yeah. Sin. X? X. Okay. Yeah, like I said, I'm a really good artist. Yeah. So, you know, you'll, you'll understand. Um, so, again, this is God coming to us. This is us rejecting God. This is a cross. And then right here, this is a symbol, I think, of Israel. But of anyone, God fears that now we gather together looking and longing for the coming solution to our problem. And then from this point on, now there's unity at the cross, and we're living and longing as disciple-makers, followers of him, because that's what we're saying a disciple is, and we're waiting for him to come back and redeem us in a new creation. 
So again, what we're focused on now is right here. This is where we're living. As the gathered church, which I think the most important part of the gathered church is the scattered church. So please hear me when I, when I train other pastors and I say, I don't want to lose it before I start, but I talk about that the greatest stumbling block in the church of America is seeing your pastors with a Sunday gathering. I, I'm not trying to be critical, but I am trying to say, are we hitting the mark? Because nowhere did Jesus tell us to go plant churches, let alone to go have large gatherings. What he said is introduce people to me. He said, follow me. And as you follow me, invite others along with you. And so I want to zoom in here now. If this is the reality of what a disciple is and what God has called us to be, I want to say, how are we doing? And, and could we grow as disciple makers? And there's a lot of issues with disciple making. Like, it is the thing. If you look at all the books that are being sold and all the conferences that are being attended and the podcasts that are being downloaded, disciple making is actually part of the problem because we can have people come to church but not actually be disciples. They can get a slap on the butt sermon. They can give. When we think about a disciple, I think some people are saying, well, it's someone that gives 2.7% of their income. They come to church 1.4 times a month. That's how we describe disciples in the Church of America. And I think that's a bad definition. So we're going to settle on this definition for now. Yeah. It's, it's interesting, Drew, hearing you share this a scripture that just keeps rattling in my head while you're talking is from Luke chapter 6, hmm. where Jesus said, when the, when the students really taught, He'll be like his teacher. I'm talking about he'll know everything his teacher knows. Okay. He'll be like him. Yeah. I'm thinking of the early church, and you take it back even a step farther. Those three circles describe the life of Christ. Yep. When you look at what he did, that describes him. Yep. Yep. And so when you think about what it means for us, in a sense, as we're being formed as disciples, to be like our teacher, mm-hmm. that, I mean, that rings really mm-hmm. true. Mm-hmm. And think about it this way. I think often we think Jesus came to do what? He came to die for our sins. We go to the cross. Jesus came to die. And I think that's insufficient of a response. He actually came to show us how to live in the kingdom. And so that's part of what Kevin's saying is, Jesus, he did come to die, I promise. But he actually came to invite us into a new way of life. He came to form a new humanity until we would actually be brought home to the Father, right? And so now the question is, so how do we live as Jesus lived? And so the workbook that I've given you guys, and like I said, I'm not going to like have us walk through it kind of word for word, but it was for us as a church, a tool to help our people live out the kingdom of God, to help our people say, are we making disciples? Because here's the concern for disciple making. Maybe you've heard these. Many of us haven't been discipled. When I say, who are you following? That's a real question. Like for me, I talk about Todd a lot at our church. These guys know Todd because he's my rabbi. Jesus is the rabbi, but I'm following Todd as he follows Jesus. Rick Dunn is another one of my pastors. The two guys I talk to every week, if not every day. Two guys that I'm following in my journey with Jesus, that they're just a little ahead of me. I mean, age, experience, whatever that might be. But these are guys that I'm faithfully following. Um, also, many of us are too busy. You ever heard that one before? I don't have time to disciple someone. I'm too busy or it's too much work. Other concerns I've heard is I'm overwhelmed. Many of us don't even know where to start. Many of us have tried something and it didn't work. Many of us don't know how to do it. Like, what do I say? What book study do we need to do? What what, what do I need to teach them, right? Which again, goes back to a a head knowledge, not a heart knowledge. I'm not against studying. I'm not against teaching. I was a teacher at Biola University, William Jessup. I like teaching. But like Larry said, we can overteach and underreach. We can teach the head and not to the heart. It doesn't go through our hands. And so I want to think about like, what are our goals, and maybe you guys have heard of goals before, right? You guys heard of SMART goals? This is not my acronym at all. What are SMART goals? Anybody know? 
Not dumb. Not dumb. I like that. As an acronym, I'm going to get to stupid goals in a second. What are SMART goals? Specific. Measurable. Measurable. Attainable. Achievable. Attainable. Relevant. And timely. So you know, just a SMART goal. I think it'd be wise for us as leaders. Now, again, when I say leaders of the church, please hear me. Lead disciple makers. Followers of Christ. Now, that's my concern. Again, we're not looking for platforms. We're looking for introducing people to the presence of God. But we should have a SMART goal. And so our goal this year as a church was that every one of our people would have a disciple. Everyone would have one. That was just our goal. Very simple. It wasn't about Sunday morning attendance. It was simply that everyone would have one. What would happen if everyone had one in your church? I'm just going to throw this in. I think I struggle with discipleship language like that. Hmm. I think... Show me where Paul called anyone his disciple. And I think it can confuse people to, in that they forget that they're disciples of Jesus. Yeah. So if we were walking with, you know, mentoring, I mean, in other words, even pick a word that's not a biblical word, that then we forget. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Everyone had someone that they were walking with. Yeah. Or for Paul, and even for Paul with Timothy, right? Where Paul says this in 2 Timothy, I'm going to instruct you. So that you would what? Instruct others who would also do what? Instruct others, right? Four generations. Secondly, two, two. But for us, we didn't have these paradigms like Paul's talking about, like, who's your disciple? Who are you journeying with in your journey with Jesus? Who are you in this journey with? Which, by the way, the disciple journey in America, I think we get really confused because everything's up to the right in America. What's the disciple-making journey really look like? Yeah, exactly. And maybe we just kind of nudge along, right? And so again, to clarify, that's what we're after. We're just saying, hey, who are you in, in, in relationship with? With the hope that God would use you to develop their faith and then they would go give it to others. And so that's what we're going to walk through in just a moment, kind of the, the how. So we want to have specific goals, measurable, achievable. Those are those smart goals. Stupid goals are this. They're, they're static. They're trivial. They're unmeasurable. They're puzzling. They're immeasurable, which I love that it's repeated. Not my acronym. I think it's really stupid when there's two of the same. And it's demotivating. Those are stupid goals. Now, I want you to just pause for a moment. What would it be like if everyone in the kingdom of God lived intentionally with someone that they would find more joy in Jesus and give that joy to somebody else? What would start to happen in the Church of America? I think we'd grow. I think we'd grow. Now, is church growth the goal? Well, not really. Is church shrinking the goal? Nope. So it's not either or. And I live in this really strange predicament. We're a large church, whatever that means, but we live like a micro church. And so like our Sunday morning gatherings, I tell our people, they're essentially a gathering of 50 micro churches. They're house churches. And we don't use that language because house churches freak people out. What does that mean? Well, it means that you're living our cube together in the context of relationship, ideally in your neighborhood. That's what it means. Deepening with God, life with other believers, engaging with the yet to believe. But that's what we are. We're a church that does have a large gathering, and I'm not against large gatherings. Did Jesus ever teach to large gatherings? What did that look like? Remember the feeding of the 5,000? He did that, which I actually really think was more about the training of the 11 disciples, but that's another story. Where else do we see the church dynamic size-wise? And this comes from a book called Discipleship That Fits. It's a great book. But the early church in the upper room, how many were there? 120 gathered, which again is almost twice the size of the average church in America. So that's a mega church. A lot of people. 
Later, we're going to look at Luke, but you've got the, the 72. What does Jesus do with the 72? Sends them. Again, why? Because that's his, who he is. He's ascending God. Gather to scatter. Even within the 72, there's the 12, which again, I could argue they're the 11. Then there's the three. Who's the three? Peter, James, John. I put the spirit here as the one, right? Because he's really the disciple maker of our churches. We're just trying to faithfully follow the spirit as he leads us. I do pray to Jesus. I do pray to the Father. But the most active part of the Trinity in my life is the spirit of God who seals me and fills me and I cry out to him. And so again, even for us as a church, that's something that we're talking about. But again, I'm not against dynamics. I'm not against church growth. I'm not for church growth, but I am for the gospel going out, the completed work of Christ. I am for joy in Jesus. And I am for those who are dead, meeting Jesus and becoming alive again. And so as we look at this, what we're really trying to dive into now, of course, is just, so what's the how? Our goal is that everyone in our church would recognize that they are disciple makers, that they are the pastors of their neighborhood. Um, that at Vintage Grace, I don't do almost any of the baptisms. You know why? Because I'm not discipling them. I'm not in journey with them. I'm not in relationship with them. Multiple times I meet people at church for the first time when they're getting discipled and they've been involved for over a year. They've been discipled for over a year. I know they're disciple, 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 but I don't know who they are. And it's 2 Timothy 2 2. And so what I've gotten to experience the last seven, eight years, we said our eighth birthday as a church, has been an incredible journey of watching the vintage church. Going back to Acts 2, living our one, living our two, living our three. So what, I, what we've done this last year is we've said, okay, how do we just look at what God's done? We've just tried to say, Spirit, what have you done? Our only goal in life is to be faithful to the Father, to faithfully follow him. Like, that's it. Again, it, it, it's, it's really a hero issue. There's one hero of every story. His name is Jesus. Again, the throw of the heart, it's either you or Jesus, right? In the Church of America, my fear, of course, is we have this, like, one cheek faith, Right? I want to share that. See, like, this is God's story. He's the hero. And so the question that we've asked as a church is, what has God been doing? And so something that, that we've kind of adopted and adapted is something called the disciple-making diamond. Now, I'm a sports guy. And so for me, I, I think of playbooks and plays. This is not a play that you run. This is a pathway of a relationship. This is not a play. Even the book that we gave you, this we kind of walked our church through. But if our goal was... Everyone has one. Everyone's in relationship with people, as ugly and messy and not linear as it is, just to be with people, trying to understand the gospel and live as disciples in this world. What does it look like? And so this book for us is a way that we've tried to help our people live on mission and actually live as Jesus lived. Not that he just came to die, but he came to show us to live. So let's walk through the book a little bit. The first part is just what is the Great Commission? Go, therefore, as you are going. And then there's a picture of the whole diaple, or the whole diamond. Identify, invite. And like I said, I'm a terrible artist, so please forgive me. Imitate, and then innovate. And this for us is not a playbook, it's just the pathway of how relationships typically happen. It's a relationship to how you met your spouse, you identified, you asked them on a date. You said, will you? They said, no. You kept identifying. You kept being persistent. You invited them. You called them into an intimate relationship. And in an intimate relationship, we start to imitate. Like, I love when I see my sin in my children. Like, where'd you get that from? Oh, I know right where you got that from. From your father. This intimate relationship where we start to imitate. And then eventually we send. We send people. And I don't think that it's like you get to a point where now you're good enough to disciple to be sent. You're sent right away. 
because it's as you are going. So Matthew 28, it's just as you go. You go and make disciples as you go. Flip that page to the next couple pages. This is work that we did, kind of what we call pre-work. You probably know Matthew 9 and Luke 5, Mark 10, Luke 19. I want to zoom in on John 4. I'm on page 2 of the booklet here. Anyone know what happens in John 4? Jesus meets somebody. Who does he meet? Woman at the well. If I try to start there because it's a story that many of us know well. What does Jesus do with the woman at the well? Ask her for water. A normal activity. Why do people get water? Because they're thirsty. A normal activity, redeeming everyday moments for kingdom movement. So again, part of this disciple-making journey is not, well, I'm going to go, again, the picture disciples made here is not come to my church, we're going to make disciples. It's go to where God's taking you in the everyday moments of life. That's where disciples are made. It's people get confused. It's like, it's not us vintage saying, we make disciples here. It's that we send disciples here. Disciples are made when stethoscopes are around your neck. Disciples are made on the ball field. Disciples are made at the barista or at the water cooler, and that's what Jesus does. Again, this is not a playbook. It's just a pathway. He's just living his life. Just as he's going, he's engaging. What, what else happens with the, the woman at the well? What does Jesus do? I love the old Tim Keller quote, right? God loves you as you are and where you are, but he loves you so much to not leave you there. He doesn't answer questions that she's not asking. I love that about Jesus. I don't know about you, but I, especially early on in faith and even in ministry, I'd answer questions for people that they weren't asking. Is that very effective? They don't want to know the answer. So they're not asking the question. But here's my call. I think it's Christ's call. Live in such a way that people always ask you the question first. Don't answer questions people are asking, but live in such a way that people ask you the question. So that's what Jesus does. Now, again, I, I love this. Does she always ask the right question? Not always, but what does Jesus do? He takes back to the throne of the heart. Well, you want to talk about, you know, where we worship? Let's talk about your marriage. Oh, all five of them, right? Like, but they're all heart issues. They're all vertical. Our one is first for a reason. Okay, so he just does that. And then what happens after she on some level comes to faith? What happens after that? She gets excited, so she shares. She goes and shares, because we share what we care about. Years ago, I had an organization I was partnered with, a national organization, and they said, Drew, we, we love what God's doing at Vintage. We're seeing all these new people come to faith. Would you write an article on evangelism? I said, sure, I'd love to. They prepaid me, so I'm like, now I can write whatever I want. This is great. And so the whole article was actually about, I don't encourage people as a senior pastor. I don't try to motivate them to evangelize. In fact, on some level, the prompt of the article, they wanted, I'm a Pharisee, recovering Pharisee. They want the to-do list. What are the boxes? What do I check? How do I win someone to Jesus? Well, again, this gospel's a God thing, not a Drew thing, not a we thing. It's a him thing. So what I, I wrote in the article, and I thought I was nice. I, I mean, I didn't, I didn't want to offend anybody, but I did want to poke the heart a little bit, right? I said, look, I don't try to motivate anyone to evangelize. I try to introduce them to R1, and the more we fall in love with Jesus, what do we tend to do? Like, we're all evangelists. What are we evangelizing people with and towards? That's the question. How do you evangelize? What, not, not, not the gospel. What are the things that you evangelize people about? Family. Family? Job, life. The warriors? Not lately, because they stink right now. That was actually the example I used in the article. I don't, no one has to motivate me to share about the Warriors. I talk about it all the time. 
And so the issue for R3 is actually an R1 issue. It's actually have I tasted living water. When you found living water, what do you want to do? You want to give it away. It's a limitless resource. It's not this scarcity mindset. Like we want to be beggars that found food in the eternal buffet and introduce. And so that's what we see at the woman in the well. And so all we're trying to do in kind of like our pre-study here, which again, I'm not going to ask us to do because we don't have time, but just to start to read, what did Jesus do with Nicodemus? What did Jesus do with, with the woman at the well? How did Jesus live his life? Because he didn't just come to die for our faith. He came to show us how to live out our faith. And so that, that's kind of that pre-work. And then we get into week one. And so week one is identified. And so what are we trying to identify? Again, this is just a pathway. It's not a playbook. It's just as you're living your life, you're trying to identify. One of the, some of the language that we use. And again, the booklet that you have, we have a different book called the 29 Day Challenge. It's got a lot of vintage-isms in it. You got our name and website. The book that you have has no reference to vintage grace. Vintage grace is not in the kingdom of God. We're but servants in the kingdom of God. There's a digital copy as well. You can take it. You can rip it off. You can adapt it. You can change all the heresy out of it, whatever you need to do. But we'd love, this is helpful for you to be able to use with people as you build joyful communities of faith. So that's what you have a 21 day challenge here. Um, but we say at Vintage Grace that prayer is the work. That, that, that we want to be praying people. Because who does this work from death to life? Who does that work? It's not an us thing. In fact, one of the things that we do, if you flip over page one, we, we have a challenge. I think that we need to raise the bar in the kingdom of God, not because we need to do anything, but the bar is raised. Every one of us is called to be disciple makers. I love the way Navigator says it. You're not a disciple until your disciple is what? Made a disciple. And so in the average person in America where they're like, I've never made a disciple, that's a problem because that's what the kingdom is. It's a gathering of disciple makers. That's what we're called to do. I spoke at a Talbot Chapel years ago. It's a school. I went to school there. And, and again, we did kind of like a survey with pastors. And, and it was just simply this, about 300 pastors that contributed. And, and I said, look, we're talking about evangelism, which I'm passionate about. If you think about APES, the apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, teacher, I'm an AE. I'm an ascent one and I'm an evangelist. Like, I love seeing lost people come found again. It happens to be the way that Jesus throws parties in heaven in Luke 15 over and over and over again. Lost people come found. And I said, this is a big deal, guys. Like, let's, let, let's focus on these arrows, not on these arrows. How do we do this well? And so I asked the question at Talbot Chapels at the end of a chapel. And I said, how many people in your church are intentionally engaging in a relationship with the yet to believe with the hope that God would use them that they would find Christ or theologically speaking that Christ would find them? How many people, because here's what I believe, that genuine transformation happens in the context of relationships. And most people come to Christ because those who genuinely love Christ inevitably share that love with other people. They don't have to be motivated. I don't have to motivate people to, to go early to the USC tailgate football game. They're always there early. Even before the gates open, they're there, not at my church, but at the USC tailgate party, right? Because they want to be there. The motivation, I'm talking about the heart issue. So those who genuinely love Christ inevitably share that love with other people. So I, I pose this question. So how many people in your church are intentionally sharing the joy of Jesus with other people, yet to believe, with the hope that God would use them to come to faith? What do you think the answers were? It's always safer to talk about other people's churches than your own church. What do you think? What do these Talbot professors or Talbot uh, pastors say? You're a Talbot grad, right? A couple of us in here. I love this school. I'm trying to figure out how to pay for it. My kids want to go to Biola. I got a 15-year-old. It's tough. 5%. 5%. What else? Any non-negative Nancys in the room? Throw out a number. It's not being recorded or anything. 
Say your name in your church. And... What do you think, Mike? I think that you'd be lucky if you got 1%. 1%? More or less the same. Okay. Three. Man, again, I do this seminar to all sorts of people. You guys are depressing. Now, if you heard what I said, I talked fast, so you might have missed it. All those who genuinely love Christ inevitably share that love with those who don't, with the hope that God would use them. So what did we just say? I didn't say it. What did you just say? Talbot said 10%, by the way. 10%, and this was a scattering of 300 churches I think were represented. 10%. So we said one, three, five. I don't know who said what. But what did we just say about the Church of America? So when Jesus says in Matthew 7 that the way is narrow, and people on it are few. You know in the Greek what few means? Few. There's very few verses that cause me to lose sleep at night, and this is one of them. And I share this because I think on some level I came to faith in seminary. And that's not to say anything negative. I was already a youth pastor. My wife hates the story. She's like, I did not marry a pagan. But on some level, I did not have a joy in Jesus in my life. I had a head knowledge. I was probably very much a holy huddle guy. Heck, I was a youth pastor. But this is something that grabs my heart and says, man, what are we doing? And I'm not trying to beat up the Church of America. I'm just trying to say, what are we doing? Like I was so pumped for COVID because we stopped having gatherings so we could focus more on this. And what did I hear from pastors across the country? Because I'm connected all over. What did I hear from pastors? How do we get back to normal? Guys, normal wasn't working. We weren't making disciples that made disciples. People were perishing in our churches, myself included. Why do we love the yet to believe? Because I am one until he finds me. And he invites me in a relationship by the grace of God, by Todd and Rick and these other men that have said, hey, just let's just start to live in a kingdom. And so as we talk about this, please hear me. This is something that I'm very passionate about because I'm terrified in the Church of America that there's a lot of people in our churches that are going to meet Jesus someday and they're going to say things like, well, I was at Vintage Grace. I was in Drew's Life Group. I was a part of the EFCA. And he's going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. And so can you just please hear my heart in this. I'm not trying to be a fatalist. I believe in God's sovereignty. He's not done with the church. He's got great things for the church. I'm extremely hopeful because I'm seeing more people ask these questions about what is the gospel, what are disciples, and now how do we make them? So again, we're going to zoom in here. Not a playbook, but a process and a pathway that I think is normal to Jesus. And here's where it starts. It starts with praying. Because who does the work to go from death to a life? Jesus. Father, the Son, the Spirit, three in one, we're praying. And so all we're doing is we're trying to say, God, you're already doing all this work. How can I just identify what you're doing and participate with you? That's all I'm doing. I'm just trying to identify. So flip to day one. We've got a challenge. There's all these challenges. People like to be challenged, at least in my culture. They like to be challenged. Here's the first challenge. Can we become praying people? We don't have power to save, but there is a Lord of the harvest. So something we do at our church is we call everybody to wake up in the morning and say, God, what are you inviting me into? We use stickers and hashtags and all sorts of stuff. It's just a sticker. We give to people and say, put it on your car, put it on your keys. There's key tags. We put it on our phones. God, what are you inviting me into? You're working. My job is to identify where you're working and participate with you. And so how do we do that? Well, we become praying people. So challenge number one is that we set an alarm for 938 just to pray. And we pray from Matthew 9, 36 through 38. 
one of the few contributions we've made to the national office is at Vintage Grace, we've set alarms since the beginning. The first alarm we sent at Vintage Grace, and this is just a public confession, the first alarm we set at Vintage Grace was 250. Why do you think we set that alarm as a church? I've already said it's a bad alarm, so. 938 comes from Matthew 938. Why do you think we set the 250? Has nothing to do with a Bible verse. We were launching a church. We want to have 250 people come on Sunday morning. Father, forgive me. But we, we grew. Then we set an alarm for 350. Why did we set our alarm for 350? Because we got 250. So now let's pray for 350. Father, forgive me. 450, on and on and on. And then it hit me. I'm the like anti-Sunday guy. Now please hear my heart. Sunday morning is my favorite point of the week. We gather as disciple makers to sing songs, to tell stories, to hear a sermon of the glory of God, and then to send you to be like I love Sundays. I just recognize senior pastors in Sunday morning gatherings are stumbling block to the actual mission of God if we're not careful. But I love Sundays. So, so, so please hear me. I went to my church. I said, guys, I missed it. I'm so sorry. We've been praying the wrong prayer. We've been praying. I've been like preaching this gospel and narrative, and we've actually been praying a prayer that's the antithesis. We've been praying red arrow prayers and not green arrow prayers. So we changed our prayer. We changed our alarm to 1142. Why 1142? It's not because we want 1,142 people at our church. Why 1142? Take a guess. Because on the 11, on the 42nd, 1,108th second of every day is 11.42 a.m. And there's 42,108 people in Elder Hills. And so we changed it. Our vision is not, and so someone said, we're never going to have an auditorium for 42,000 people. Nope, we're not. But I believe if we send 1,000 missionaries to live, they can actually reach 42,000 people. And so we changed the prayer. And then, of course, what started to happen is people came up and said, well, I don't live in El Dorado Hills. Which, by the way, that is our church planning strategy. We just hired this guy from Texas with the intent. I told our church, Will's here. We don't want him here very long. He's going to plant a church in Placerville because we have life groups that are multiplying, living on mission, these house churches. So that's going to be our next church plant. So he just joined our team a couple of months ago. So we changed it from 1142 to 938. Why did we change it to 938? Well, here it is. Matthew chapter 9, 35 through 38. Someone read it for us on page 4. So that's our prayer. Every day, in fact, it was really fun because that's something we shared with Andrew Hoffman, the national level, and then we shared it with all the, the, the whole EFCA. But it's really fun because during our session, Heather was here, but all the alarms went off. What would happen if we started to become people that prayed to the Lord of the harvest? He's the one that does this work. We're just crying out to him. But he said, does God find glory and joy in saving people from death to life? Yes. We're just saying, God, would you glorify yourself through helping us to see what you're doing, to pray and watch, and say, God, what do you invite me to step into? You're doing the work. We pray earnestly. 
We pray this prayer. We stopped in our session last and we just, we just prayed. Lord, you're the Lord of the harvest. Would you send kingdom laborers? And would you open our eyes to see how you want us to participate? Because here's the truth of what we see all throughout scripture. He's the Lord. It's his throne. He's doing a work. He's writing a story for his glory and for our good. But sometimes he goes and he grabs Kevin. He says, Kevin, come on out here. He says, I got this person for you. I want you to be a part of this grand narrative and story. And he puts us in the game. It's his game. It's his glory. But he gives us a front row seat. Have you ever been a part of someone's life when they cross this line from here to here? Have you ever seen that happen? Is it not like the best thing ever? Again, there's parties in heaven, and yet we built this church structure in America that says, I want your yet-to-believe friends to come to church, invite them to Christmas. The best front door for the gospel is not the front door of your church, it's the front door of your house. It's the coffee shop, it's the, it's, it's the stethoscope, it's the places and the spaces that you're already living, that you're already going. This is where disciples are made. Disciples are made here, and yet we've created the structure that says, come here, I, Paul Ortlinghouse, will give you the gospel. And he will. He'll be faithful. But it's not about Paul. There's already a hero. He's already won. He's the one inviting us in. And I think that we have robbed people from the joy of giving them a place in, in, in God's grand play. And it's his story. And so, again, what we're doing and identify is we're simply saying, God, you're working. You're doing all these things. I just want to pray and watch. I just want to become people that pray. And that's what I believe we have at church. People have asked me, what, what's God doing at Vintage Grace? What's so special? What's so unique? Our people live as missionaries. That's what you need. And I don't think that's true in the church of America. I think the number is 10%. I'm not nearly as negative as the rest of you. Um, you're probably right, because I'm an eternal optimist. So I tend to like really believe the best. But I think you're right, because we're not sharing the gospel. We're not praying and watching. And by the way, where does that language come from? Anybody know where that pray watch language comes? We use it every day at church. Anyone know where the language pray watch comes from? Somebody knows. You know where it comes from? Neil. Neil. And Neil laughs. He's like, I don't use it nearly as much as you. I'm like, we have adopted it full. Our whole church knows it. Again, we pray and we watch. He's the Lord of the harvest. We pray earnestly. Recognize that people are harassed and helpless. Like, why do we love our three? Because that was us and the good shepherd found us. And then he sends us. He saves us to send us then to journey with other people. That's ascending nature as ascending God. So all of week one, I want you to look. Day two, we want you to just pray for your friends and your family. Day three, if you flip the page, pray for your neighborhood. Day four, pray for your spaces of recreation. Day five, turn to day five, pages eight and nine. Pray for your work, school, and the other spaces. Just where you work, live, and play. That's it. You are a set one of those spaces. Those people are not coming to Vintage Grace on a Sunday. On some level, we don't care. What we care about is, are you going to them on Monday? Because it's 0.7% of the week on Sunday. And I love our Sunday gatherings. We gather, we worship, we go vertical. But the best part is that we send you to be everyday missionaries. And that starts with praying and identifying. You're just identifying. Now, what are you trying to identify? What are you trying to identify with people at Starbucks? They show my pray watch list that don't have names. It's like the redhead, curly-haired gal at Starbucks. What am I identifying? I'm praying Matthew 9.38 over her. Lord, would you do a work in her life to make her a kingdom laborer? Notice we're not praying even for conversion. We're praying for kingdom labor. If they're laboring in the kingdom, guess what? They're residents of the kingdom. They've been converted. We're not skipping conversion. We're just saying those who are converted actually are kingdom laborers. What are we trying to identify here? Their need to know. And we're praying that they would recognize their need, that they would ask questions. 
seems on some level you're, you're praying for God to be at work mm -hmm. in their lives. Yep. Yeah. The work of God. The work of God in their lives. Towards regeneration. And maybe they're, again, I'm trying to identify people here and here. It's the same message. That's what I mean. This arrow is significant to me in my kind of picture of the gospel because it's all about joining Jesus. If you love Jesus, it's about more joy. Jesus. If you don't love Jesus, it's actually finding your identity, right? So you're almost praying that they would recognize their depravity, that they would be invited into, that they would ask questions. One of the texts that we talk a lot about here is Luke chapter 10. Anyone know we look at Luke 10? The person of peace. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke 10 with me. We're just praying that we would be able to identify what is God, because again, God's got to do the work. We can't do the work. We're praying for people of peace. So again, I'm not going into Starbucks praying and watching going, oh, now's the chance for the Romans road. Here comes my, you know, my spiritual throne illustration. I'm just praying and saying, God, you're working. Would you reveal to them? And I'm looking for people of peace. So look at Luke 10. You guys know the text, I'm sure. But in Luke 10, especially verses 5, 6, 7, how do we identify people of peace? What starts to happen with them? You're in a relationship. You're coaching Little League. They're your neighbors. What's happening in Luke 10? How do you know this is a person of peace? And you're welcomed into their life. Mm -hmm. open he opens his door, right? That's verse five. He opens his door. If he doesn't ask a question, he hasn't invited you in. Don't answer it. He opens his door, he invites you in. What else? Just in those three verses, five, six, seven. Eat as you're going. He's just eating. Hospitality. There's a relationship that's building and growing. He receives blessing. He shows interest in verse six. You're just praying, saying, God, where are you already working? Where have they started their journey? And how am I stepping in to your story, not mine? Verse seven, he opens his house. He's hospitable. Verse seven also shows sustained grace. And so that's all we're doing. God's the evangelist. He's the one that is the Lord of the harvest. We're just saying, God, how do we be a part of what you're already doing? And so we're really praying and watching to identify. Now, I want you to look here. In our booklets, we literally just ask people to pray four or five days in a row. Because honestly, is that not the best thing we can do in the kingdom? So often prayer is like the last thing. All I can do is pray. Let's start there. Let's start in the morning, God invited me into. Let's set an alarm at 9.38. Now, why do we start the day in prayer and then set an alarm right away in the, in the beginning of the day? What does your typical Monday morning look like for you? Hectic. What does that mean? Getting kids out the door, getting to work. Yeah. Making dogs, which needs to be all those things to do. Yep. And so what happens when your life is hectic? Does anyone else get distracted? Does anyone else kind of forget what the main thing is or just me? I'm with you. Like, and part of it today is we just ditched our kids before my wife's here. We just left before they were awake. They don't even know we're gone. We hope they showed up at school. I don't know, grandma and grandpa, let's see what happens, right? But for me, I get distracted. I take my eye off the ball. I forget what the goal is. I forget the mark. And so again, these images, this language, I mean, you can, Zach's been at our church since day one. You can ask Zach. Like, I preach the same sermon every Sunday. <laughs> Like, we have the same conversation. Now we walk verse by verse through the Bible. Like, it's part of our, our strategy because our one matters and growing people of God is our one on purpose. But really, we have this conversation over because we get distracted, because we forget. 
And so all we're doing here in kind of, kind of step one, this natural process, is we're just, we're just writing down names because we're going to forget. We get really busy. We, uh, you know, garage door openers, I think, are like a tool of Satan in America because they shut us off from our neighbors. They, they forget what the mission, the mission fills your front yard. The mission field's your barista. The mission field's who, who's your coaching with. And so, so we just start to pray because it actually reminds us what matters most. What I find when I pray for people, I love them more because I remember that God loves them. I'm not fighting with the world. I'm fighting for the world. I'm just praying, God, you love this barista in ways that I don't even know because I don't know her. I can't love her. That's, that's inauthentic for me to say, I love you. I don't know you, but I know God loves you. I know that for sure. And now I get to just pray and say, God, would you do a work? And so again, so we call people to just start to identify who are the people in the places and spaces that you're already living with. It changes the game. It changes the game instead of saying, hey, invite them to church. We get to send the church to be the sent ones of Jesus. And again, invite them onto the dance floor. That's the spirit's work. And give them a role. It's been incredible. Now at the end of every day on page eight, there's a prompt there. Anyone want to read that for me at the bottom of page eight, day five? Yep, bottom eight. Each name that you wrote down is brought um, was brought to your mind for a purpose, as they are also on God's mind. Spend time talking to Him about them, specifically praying Matthew nine, thirty six to thirty eight over each of their names. You can pray something like, "Lord, would you call this person to yourself and help them find even greater joy in you and purpose in your kingdom? Would you make them a kingdom laborer?" disciple that makes disciples wherever they are for your glory. That's it. We're just praying. We're just trying to be praying people. This is a list of people. So I have literally hundreds of my pray watches on my phone because a book that's very impractical when you're ordering your coffee and like, oh, the person that, you know, it's just on my phone. We're just praying. God, would you do a work only you can? You're in control. You're the hero. It's your harvest. It's your throne that we're going to come worship someday. How do we then play our role? And then day six and day seven, of course, is just can we start to identify? On day six, we're trying to say, is there a pattern? Do I keep seeing the same person? Do I keep spending time with the same people? Is there maybe opportunity? Are there people of peace? Are there questions being asked? We're just trying to identify, God, what are you doing? How do we participate? Flip to page 10. It's day seven. Reflect on your pray watch list. That was one of our goals as a church this year, that everyone in our church would have a pray watch list. Not as like a, a duty thing, not as an obligation, but just an opportunity. What's God doing? How do I get to be a part of it? Is your list bigger or smaller than you thought? We found introverts who were like, I know a lot of people. No wonder why I try to hide from them, right? Like, but God loves them. He's doing a work there. What people on your list overlap? Where do you start to see people repeatedly? Maybe there's an opportunity there. Are you praying for that? Are you watching? Because the Spirit's moving. The question is, are we paying attention? He's moving. I mean, that, that's my big idea in Revelation. I have two kind of primary ideas I keep saying over and over again. God wins. I'm loving our study in Revelation. God wins, and number two is he's working in ways that you don't know. There's a future, right? There's a future that is already assured, and there's also a present that he's working. We're just trying to cooperate with him. Number three and four then is, are there other people from your church within your spaces and places? What are their names? Who are you already living on mission with in these places? One of the things I love at Vintage is our people recognize as they go to Jackson Elementary School, which is where my kids go, there's a truckload of missionaries they're doing that together with. We're not the ones saving. We're praying to the Lord of the harvest. And then we start to see what we call pray watch overlap. Um, we have maps in our lobby. We say, anyone who comes, put your thumbprint where you live on the map. So they can start to see, look at all these missions. Like, we're doing this together. 
And they don't have to go to Vintage Grace. You can do it with other churches too. But what's this look like for us to live on mission together, this pray watch over life? He's the Lord of the harvest. We're just watching what he's already doing. So that really is our only goal for week one. Could we become a church where people are actually praying and watching to identify? God's work, and I'm just convinced of all the prayers we pray, I don't know if God's more glorified through any prayer other than, Lord, would you bring people from death to life? Would you be the Lord of the harvest and bring them home? Number two then, week two then is, is how do we invite Week two is invite. Now, what are we inviting them to? Church. Church. I'm glad you said that. At this point, I hope no one would say that. And we tell our people, sometimes church needs to happen on the lacrosse field because they're not coming to Vintage Grace. You're going to them. It's okay if you miss church. I will tell you, Vintage Grace, we have our average attendance about three out of four Sundays. And again, the the call is high. Again, but we are. We're we're seeker sensitive because we want you to be sensitive to the seekers in your life. Go to them. So what are you inviting them to? We look at this invite. Well, if we set R, R cubed, and again, for those of you who missed it, R cubed is the three great relationships. Relationship with God, with other believers, and with the yet to believe. Three relationships. So again, what are we inviting them to relationship? Relationship with who? You. Which feels weird because I really want to invite them to relationship with Jesus, but they don't know Jesus or care about Jesus yet. So I'm inviting them in a relationship with me and my hope, like Paul, is that as they follow me, they actually see Jesus. Why? Because our one is present in my life. It's not that my, my relationship with my wife is perfect or my kids is perfect or even God is perfect. It's I'm just inviting them to be on this journey with me and journey with me as I journey with Jesus. So I'm inviting them into that relationship. Now, this week was a lot of fun. If you look at day eight, you'll see how has Jesus invited you into discipleship? How has he used other people? Flip to page 15. It's day nine. Because the big rebuttal I hear from people is, I'm too busy to disciple. That's why you went to seminary. That's a pastor's job. We're missing it. We're, we're stealing people of the joy of journeying with Jesus. Again, he sends the person of peace, Luke 10. He sends the disciples. Again, even if you think about the funnel, he sends these guys to reach these guys. And so all I'm trying to have people do is look at page 15. What are the normal spaces and places of your life? What are the rhythms? Well, I go to Starbucks. Well, I go to preschool to pick up my kid. Well, I coach softball, except for today, because I'm a DLD, and I can't get back in time. What are the places and spaces that you're already doing? What's missing? Now, please hear me. We all need to probably repent of our schedules. We're probably too busy. I get that. But I'm not trying to add anything to your schedule, Disciple Maker. I'm trying to help you redeem what's already there, what God's already doing. You're not doing new things. Someone turn to Matthew chapter 9. Actually, all of you guys, if you can, turn to Matthew chapter 9 for me. Again, like I said, we're just trying to live the way that Jesus lived. Matthew 9, I just want to highlight a couple verses. Somebody read Matthew 9, verse 1. Anybody there? Jesus climbed into the boat and went back across the lake. And then he goes and heals a paralytic. He just gets in a boat. For us, it's getting in the car. Every Uber driver is an opportunity to pray for them and to say, God, would you do work in his life? I'll probably never see it because I'm not going back to Chicago for all sorts of reasons. But I'm just praying. He just gets in his boat. Someone read verse 9. 9 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax store. He's just walking by the, the, the storefront. He sees a guy, he just prays. Spirit, move in his life. Verse 10. What's Jesus doing at verse 10? He's eating food. Just as he goes in what he's doing. So all we're trying to identify here in your schedule is, 
What are the normal spaces and places? So when I identify someone that God's intersected my life with, when they become a person of peace, when there's some green shoots, when I feel like the Spirit's saying, Drew, I want you to just journey with this guy, I invite him to coach Little League with me. I'm not adding anything new to my schedule. I invite him to go to the gym with me. I invite him to eat dinner with me. But you just get invited to live life with me. It's an intentional investment, just like we said. Are we intentionally engaging in relationships with the yet to believe with the hope that God would use us to point them towards him? And so that's really what week three is all about. If you keep reading in 9, 918, he was just having this conversation. 927, he's walking by. 932, as they were going. The spirit of God is moving and working. The question is, are we paying attention to what he's doing? And at least if you're like me, the answer is no. That's why I set alarms. That's why I try to create a muscle memory of prayer. God, what are you inviting me into? What are you doing? And how do I then get to be a part of that? And so that's what we're after for identify and then invite. Just as we are going, we're inviting them into relationship with us. And so day 10 is just how to be intentional. How do we have a listening prayer? Page 17 on day 11. I don't know who said this. If you know, please tell me. I'd love to give him credit. But I love people who are like, I just wish God would speak to me. And the guy says, well, why don't you just start reading your Bible out loud? Like God's speaking. The problem is most of us aren't reading and most of us aren't listening. Part of this prayer God invited me into is just like, I'm going to shut up and just pay attention. So how do we practice a listening prayer? How do we teach our people how to listen to God? how to hear his voice, how to be led by him. It could be bad pizza you ate the night before, I get that. But man, I'd like to teach our people for the releasing of the kingdom, releasing of the saints to listen to God. Day 12, people are not projects. How do we just genuinely love people? The old Tim Keller quote, God loves you as you are where you are, but he loves you so much not to leave you there. How do we just start to see people, not as an agenda, I'm just inviting them in relationship with me as I follow Jesus. How do I redeem quality time on day 13? We're not trying to add anything new. And then day 14, of course, is how do we do this in community? Because again, it's not just the first relationship with God, but it's not only one. And so that's what I mean. Accountability is not a bad word. So one of the things we ask our people to do is, hey, to tell the people in your life, hey, Kevin, I'm really going to try to invest in, in Stephen this year. Would you be praying for me as I prayed for him as we walked on this trip? Because you know I have these moments and these moments. Like, would you pray for me and for him? And all of a sudden, there's this really appropriate accountability that says, let's do this together. This is our church. That is the target. That is the goal. And so we try to do this together. Then we get to, to week three, which is imitate. And my grandma, man, I love her. I think I was on her pray watch list forever. I think it's why I'm a believer. She's with Jesus now. But she always hated Paul, which is really tough to do since he wrote the majority of the New Testament. I hate how arrogant he is. Follow me. Grandma, follow me as what? As I follow Christ. We're inviting people into relationship with us, but we are calling them to imitate us. Again, like I said, I hate seeing my sin in my kids, but I know where they got it from. So we call it to imitate us, but it's really as we follow Christ. That's Ephesians 5, 1. We're following, we're imitating. And so the week three is more, hey, let's make sure our R1 is actually real. You know, what you win them with, you win them too. We're not winning them with anything other than I'm following Jesus. Follow me as I follow him and the joy that he produces. So week three then is all about imitating Christ we use this acronym because everything's an acronym. We say pray, watch, and then step. The most important steps are your R1 steps. How are you stepping with Jesus? And then when you step with other people, when God prompts you through a person of peace or as you are going, when you do that, you show up, you talk less, you eat more, and you pray always. There's just this spirit of like, man, let's eat more meals together on purpose. Let's show up with people in relationship. Let's ask questions about them. Let's be ready. And so this is just the guide for this week of just helping people talk less, eat more, Pray through the process. 
And then day 20 is really, really significant. Day 20 is share your story. Day 20 is just share your joy in Jesus' story. How has he showed up for you? How has he discipled you? How do you get to share your gospel? Part of why we got to know what the gospel is is because when they ask you a person of peace, as we're going, we do get opportunities to share our story, to say, hey, this is what God's done in my life. I was dead in my sin. I was fighting for my joy in all the wrong places, and I found it in Christ. And we get to tell this gospel story. It's inviting Kevin on the dance floor, and God says, go, Kevin, now's your time. Always be ready to share the joy you have in Jesus. Ready to give a defense, not in an apologetic sense. Yes, that's Peter's comment, but also just in a relational sense. Everyone in my life wants to be happier tomorrow than they are today. Have you noticed that? Everybody. The question is, are they settling for lesser joys? That's one of my definitions of sin. Instead, it's like, I get to tell the story of Jesus and how he meets me in my brokenness and redeems me and reclaims me, restores me, loves me. I get to go tell that to a world that's looking for acceptance, looking for joy. And so that's where inviting people. And so share your story is a big deal. Everyone can't have one if you're not ready to share your story with those who are looking, with those who are, are, are looking for that. And then we kind of close with this fast. We did it as a whole church. And then we came back together. And then the, really, for me, the, the favorite part, of course, and really for imitate, that, that's 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, right? It's trying to cast the vision at the very beginning of we're called to make disciples. So Paul to Timothy to faithful men to others. We're trying to say, what would this be like? One of the great joys for me, like I said, I don't do a lot of baptisms at our church, but I get to watch these guys. I have four, five, six generations. I've watched people go live on mission. It's so humbling. And it's hard for me because I'm like a a small church pastor. I grew up in kind of a a smaller country setting. And and I love this. I want to know everyone, everything. I can't pastor everyone. That's not my calling. Your calling is to pastor your neighborhood and to pastor your coffee shop and to be released in that way. And so innovate for us is now the, the joy of sending people to live on mission. To send people in their context. You know, I'm never going to go to the ballet studio. My daughter doesn't dance and I don't dance. And you're welcome for not dancing. But man, ballerinas need Jesus. How do we send people and they start to live out the gospel? And this is what we see here, right? We see Jesus raise up and send out. And so really this funnel here really needs to be flipped. The Church of America has kind of said this. You've got a large crowd. We've been planting Sunday services. And every large church, what are they trying to do? trying to get smaller because you grow in small communities in fact was this jesus's strategy i don't think so i don't know about you but whenever i have a strategy that wasn't jesus's i tend to think he's smarter than me right i think we need to flip this funnel and so we started to see like what does jesus do he has lots of our one time does he not lots of time where he's being still with the father he's surrendering to the spirit Again, that, that, that would be one he does have his inner three and he kind of starts there he has his 11, he sends the 72 again. But again, it starts here. And so this vision, of course, of the Church of America, let's get lots of people to come. But I don't think it's actually working. I don't think we're hitting the mark. And I'd rather just, how about we just start with one? And again, does everyone have one? And so how do we kind of flip this funnel in such a way that we start to say, what does it look like? Instead of us gathering a lot, and I don't know about you, but in Church of America, it's like we gather a lot and we hope the really mature people become our disciple makers, right? Instead, Jesus grabbed a bunch of knuckleheads. Matthew, Mark, Luke, Kevin, Heather, Mike, Drew, right? And he says, I'm going to put my spirit in you. I'm going to seal you. I'm going to fill you. You're going to surrender. You're going to have thrown in your heart. I'm going, to, I'm going to equip you. I'm going to call you. And I'm going to send you to go be disciples and make disciples. So again, I know I talked way too fast. I'm kind of sorry. I'm kind of not. Um, but I just wanted to kind of share what God's doing in our story. 
Um, the best part of our church is the majority of our church thinks that they're missionary. The majority of our church thinks that they're disciple makers. Um, I don't not like Sundays, but Sunday is a training time. We tell our church 50 weeks a year, we're focused on you guys as believers to train you as disciple makers to send you. And that's true of our small group gatherings. Sundays are really about Tuesdays. Even our small group gatherings, though, Tuesdays are really about Thursday and Friday and Saturday. It's not about the thing. It's about the journey with Jesus. It's about being a disciple that makes disciples. So any questions? I want to end with about 10 minutes of Q&A. Concerns, most embarrassing moments, heresy patrol. Thoughts, comments? Sure. We have a person who has some training, teach people how to share the gospel. Mm-hmm. So is this something that can integrate together with people? Yeah. Absolutely. And I think what you can do is, this is why I started, I didn't have a lot of time here, but it's just, what is the gospel? And then go to page 20, what's your story with the gospel? Right? This is the story. And, and so again, part of why Jeff Vandersell, I'm pointing at Paul, but again, these are Jeff's images. Part of this is because I think the majority of people in my church can go V, X, cross V. And that helps them tell the story of creation, fall, redemption, new glory. And so it just helps them tell that story of the gospel. And then the other story that's important is your story. How, how are you interacting with the gospel? And so I think we need to train our people, right? But again, and please hear me, I'm not anti-evangelism. I just want to be an overflow of your heart and of your story. Does that make sense? So I, I think that's our role, right? God, God says in Ephesians 4 through Paul, I've given you to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers. I'm not a shepherd teacher. Seminaries exist to train shepherds, teachers. I'm an AE, apostle evangelist. But our job as the church is to build up the body so the body would be sent once. Because that's what God modeled for us. Does that kind of make sense? It's great. What else? Questions, concerns? Part of what I love about what I've seen God do at Vintage and what I get to be part of is that this scales in every possible way. Someone's like, well, my church is small. It's a micro church. Great. So it was Jesus's. That's what it was. How did you send these people out? How are you going to follow up them? Are they coming back to report what they have done for a period of time? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're living with their one. They're living with their small community that they're living in relationship with. So as a senior pastor, there's lots that happens at our church I don't have a clue about. I don't need to, right? I mean, he's the lead pastor, right? And yet also, there has to be this, that's when accountability can be healthy, but we're having this conversation every single day at our church. How are we living our cute? How are they living our cute? And they're all in process. I'm in process. I'm following, and I'm inviting others to do the same. So yeah, so it's about, so a lot, a lot of what we do is, as a leadership team is we're discipling disciple makers, right? They're viewing their community as a community to be discipled. How, how have you seen in the healthiest ways of helping people who grew up in a Sunday-focused yep. gathering? I mean, that's, that's, that's their understanding. It's all they know. Yep. It's all they know. And, and are there some ways you found that have been helpful to expand, expand that a mm-hmm. bit? Yeah. Because I, I, I think that's one of the toughest. Yep, yep. And I would say as a senior pastor and all of our team, we model it. I think vision is caught, not taught. Mm-hmm. And so, again, I am a seminary professor, uh, professor by trade, like I like yeah. to teach. Yeah. Um, but that's not where the gospel grows. The gospel grows through yeah. someone saying, Kevin, let's walk together. Yeah. And so I'll ask a lot of questions like, what's your R3 relationship with people like? And more often than not, people in the church, because we've created a holy huddle, they don't have any. 
and we just ask questions like, well, is that a problem? Well, no, it's not. Okay, well, now I'm going to stop asking questions because there's no green shoot, right? But right. if they go, oh my gosh, there's a problem there. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to go back to that organization, right, that I wrote that article for. It's that idea of like, okay, at the masses, they can't handle it. Okay, that's fine. No big deal. But I'm going to model. So senior pastors, our life group leaders, our missional community leaders, they're all living this. And we're asking questions. And we do like programmatic type things, but we're trying to get to those relationships. And what we found as a church is we're constantly redefining a disciple for people. Um, so again, like, like we've got this, we call it a disciple making guidebook. That's where all this language comes from. It's just how do we help people see who is Jesus? What is the gospel? What's he called us to and we say, he's called us to make disciples. Then we say, well, what is a disciple? And so we're just, we're literally redefining discipleship. And so again, my conviction as a church plant director for our district, right? My conviction is we've been planting services for the last 20 years, not communities of disciple makers. And really the majority of our church comes because they got mad at their senior pastor or their church because of their whatever. And then I try to tell people like, whoa, 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 they're going to be mad at you in a year or two. And nowadays it's like a month or two. There's so many things to be mad about. So it's like... What you win them with, you win them too. Vision is caught, not taught, which means we as leaders need to actually live the vision. I had a pastor call the other day. He's like, Drew, I need help. Um, someone said you could help me. I need to know, am I supposed to do my PhD or my doctorate of ministry, right? You're a former professor. Um, what do I need to get? And I'm like, who are you following and who are you discipling? And he's like, I don't know what you mean. And so again, we're, we're changing the game. We're changing the conversation to what letters do I need behind my name and what letters actually give me a name. Right? And so we're, we're trying to change that slowly but surely. And I live in a world where I feel like I have no home, just to clarify. I'm a microchurch guy that has a large Sunday gathering. And so literally, like, there is no network that I can live with because, so I just find guys like Jeff Vanderstelt, or I find other guys I can journey with. Again, Todd is a, is a pastor. He's my pastor. Rick's a pastor of a huge church. You know Rick Dunn. You know, so I'm just learning from these guys. But I'm trying to bring us back to, it's the same mission if you're a microchurch leader or a megachurch. It's the same mission. Make disciples and make disciples. I actually think it's easier to do it in a microchurch setting because you're not distracted by the Sunday morning gathering. Um, but please hear me. Like, I love Sundays. It's just our church budget, which is large, we spend a whopping $20,000 on worship. And our worship pastor's here. He's still here. He still loves us. Ah, this is one of our worship team members. I don't know what seminar he's in. But we have a two point three or $4 million budget. Twenty grand in worship. We're not focused on Sunday morning sound. We are, but we aren't, right? And so we're living in that tension. So it's hard, but we're redefining discipleship. And we're not defining it. That's why I say heresy patrol. We're trying to read the Bible, let the book describe it and define it. We're just trying to go back to it. And so I'm daily fighting against, I mean, I err on all of these at different times. I err on an R2 side. I'm trying to pull myself back. All of these are descriptions of me at some point in my life. And I'm just trying to get back to the heart of what is a disciple, which is a follower. And it's hard in this leadership culture of America. It's hard. Like I've committed to never having a Twitter account. And the reason being is because in Twitter, you're saying things like, follow me. And I'm like, I just want to follow Jesus. So I will not tweet uh, or twit or whatever it is, you know. All right. Last question. Zach's got a bit.ly that will write on the board. Zach, you want to come write it up here real quick inside the diamond. And a bit.ly is just a link where you can download this packet. And again, like I said, rip it off, take it, do whatever you want. We brought a lot of books if you want more for your team. Um, we walked through it as a whole church. I'll let you um, And it was great. We didn't have a bitly last one, so this is... We didn't have a bitly, yeah. 
Bitly is a website. Either, either way. And again, Neil was funny. Neil was like, you made this book just for us. I was like, no, we made it for our church. But again, what God's doing at Vintage is incredible, and it shouldn't be unique, and it's not that creative, and it's, I mean, it's very simple. It's a simple church model. All right, last question, and then we'll close in prayer. Did that article get published? No, the article never got published. <laughs> Did you return the money? Uh, no, I didn't. Um, I did the work. I talked to the guy that hired me because he was offended that he didn't get to publish. He was excited about it. Uh, he recruited me to write the article because he knew he knew what I was going to say, right? Um, it was his higher-ups. Um, and, uh, yeah, no, I kept the money because I did the work. Um, I, didn't, I didn't lose any sleep over keeping the money. I lose sleep over Matthew 7. I didn't lose any sleep over this. Yeah. I can't believe the FCA publishing didn't work there. You know, EFCA and I, yeah. No other questions? Cool. Lord, it's our heart that you would send kingdom laborers into the harvest. You tell us the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Father, would you make that not true of us? Would you make us a gathering of disciples that make disciples? Would that mark our association of like-minded churches? Would it, would it mark... Soma, would it mark the body of being released as disciple makers? Would you do a work in paradise as, as many people have left the scene and some have come in? And so I just pray specifically that you would use Mike and his team to, to be disciples and make disciples, to journey with you, Jesus. I pray over San Francisco and for Pastor Mock and for John Brackett and for the people that are living on mission, Lord, that you would continue to light a fire in their heart that you would increase their joy, that your joy would overflow to their neighbors and their baristas and their friends and their families. Spirit, I do pray that, that you would fall on us, that you would rest on us, that there would be a, a mark of joy and a passion for, for your kingdom to come and your will to be done. And so I thank you that we get to participate in what you're doing. We thank you that we know the final score, that we already know that you win and that you are glorious. And I ask that you would help us to be faithful now as we faithfully follow you and invite us to do the same. For your glory, we ask this and everybody said, amen.